Hello, and welcome back to Quincy and Claire Talk Conspiracy. We are putting on a special episode at the moment. This is an interview that we had the pleasure of doing with two really kind gentlemen who are experts in this field, experts on the Titanic, and also just Atlantic liners more broadly. And we have to say they were they were such a pleasure to, to welcome to the podcast. It was really fun, actually, because I couldn't see their faces for most of the podcast. And then at the end, I sort of popped my head around and said hello. And I was like, oh, this is who I've been talking to, these friendly faces. It was a good time. It was yeah, good time. it was... We're so excited for you to all hear what they had to say. And, you know, they were so knowledgeable that I think they really yeah. elevated what, yeah. you know, we were able to talk about. And I, and I really hope that you all find it really educational in terms of what we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. While we outlined the theories, you know, it's hard for us as, you know, amateurs, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call us what we are, to, um, yep. you know, break down why, why a theory is not possible. So having mm. someone really do that in these clear terms was, it was just fantastic. And we're, yeah. we're so excited that we were able to welcome them. They're our first guests on the podcast, whoop, whoop. hopefully yep. of many. This is kind of our, our goal going forward mm. that we're able to, you know, bring experts on and talk to them about why these conspiracies just don't add up. That's, mm-hmm. that's what we want to do at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I learned so much from these guys and hopefully you will too. So I think we'll pass straight on to Mark and Kent. All right, so as promised, we are here with our interview. We're very, very excited to be joined today by two experts in the field. We're going to have them introduce themselves and yeah, then get into the interview. So would you guys like to introduce yourself, maybe what you're interested in and what your, where your expertise lie? Uh, it's good to be with you today. I'm Jay Kent Layton. I live in the United States and I'm a maritime historian and author. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Hi, it's uh, good to be with you as well. I'm Mark Chernside. I'm uh, based in the UK and uh, yeah, me too. I'd say I was a maritime historian and author. Uh, my focus is on White Star and uh, not just Titanic, other lines of the period, which really helps to understand the context of Titanic. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that uh, is a great segue into our first question, which is generally about liners at the time and why the Titanic would have been so exciting to the public or was it exciting in the beginning or was it did it go down in infamy after uh you know after it sunk it's a really good question actually Quincy because um to a large extent Titanic's popularity was after she sank not before uh the um the draw of the world's uh, unsinkable ship uh, going out on its maiden voyage and sinking uh, and taking 1,500 people uh, to their deaths. Uh, it's really captured the public's imagination. But up until that evening, uh, Titanic was not as exciting uh, as is popularly thought of. Um, of course, there was a great competition in technology on the oceans at the time. Uh, the Cunard Line had put out the Lusitania and Mauritania, and uh, they were the world's largest, fastest ships, and White Star had really countered that business threat uh, with the construction of two and eventually three ships, uh, the Olympic, the Titanic, and then later on the Britannic. And the Olympic had made its maiden voyage in 1911, and it was the same size as the Titanic, uh, more or less uh, same dimensions, 
many of the same amenities and features. Uh, and it had really taken the world by storm because even though it wasn't as fast as the Lusitania or Mauritania, it was much larger, it was more luxurious uh, and very comfortable ships at sea as well. So the Titanic was really, uh, it was an improvement over the Olympic. It was expected that it was going to be a little bit better. And uh, through some uh, calculating, uh, some, some finagling with the figures, they had managed to make Titanic larger than the Olympic on paper. And so they were able to claim that it was the world's largest ship, the second of the class. And so it was an exciting moment in history. People were enthused over it, uh, but largely its popularity was from after the fact. Right. That makes it that, you know, I was I was curious about that. You know, we hear so much about the Titanic and we hear very little about the Olympic other than in the context that we were talking that we're going to talk about in the theory. But it seems to me that as the first one, the Olympic might have, you know, captured the public's attention more. Um, mm -hmm. So that's yeah, I'm. I'm glad that that's the answer. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And did on the subject of the Olympic, did they look as similar as the theorists like to claim? As you know, as someone coming from a position where I can't tell the difference between any ship, they do look similar <laughs> to me in pictures. But um, coming from your perspective, were they as identical as everyone likes to claim, or were they more sisters than twins? Um, Mark. I yeah, I, I think you put it well, actually, they're sisters, not twins. That's a good way to describe it. So, um, you know, there are only, I think it was 14 four stackers that were built. Um, and, you know, if you see them from a distance, blur your eyes. Um, you know, you sometimes see Lusitania or Aquitania standing in for <laughs> Titanic. Um, so, you know, if you, if you just glance at them from a distance, yeah, they pretty much look identical. Um, there are some obvious ways to tell Titanic apart, um, in particular the uh, forward end of the A-deck promenade was enclosed on Titanic, so that represents quite a distinctive visual difference. Uh, also, uh, if you look at B-deck, the, the, the windows, the spacing looks different. Um, so they, they certainly weren't identical. Um, we know that Titanic's propellers were different to Olympic. And um, as um, you know, Kent alluded to, Titanic was basically an improved version of Olympic. So she had everything Olympic had, but plenty more on top. Um, Titanic had the first private promenade decks at sea, you know, the, the two famous uh, millionaire suites on uh, B deck. And, um, you know, the, the whole the whole notion that these ships were identical and could just be swapped over is is nonsense. There were significant differences, and you know, researchers have documented hundreds, if not thousands, of minor differences between the two ships. Um, you know, whether it's deck fittings, um, you know, even the smallest details that the tiles in the first class smoke room were different. The, I don't think the pattern was the same, but the, the colours were different, if I remember rightly. So. You know, there are all these little details that differentiate them. And, uh, you know, I'm someone that's uh, read the, uh, the surveys of uh, Olympic. You know, these ships were inspected by the British Board of Trade. They gave them their seaworthiness certificates. And if you just look at the detail in these surveys, you know, the surveyors, they really knew these ships down to the last rivet. 
and um, you know the just the idea that they could be mistaken you know for, for the other um, yeah that works if you're looking at them from a distance but certainly once you get aboard I, I just think it's uh, you know that's impossible I love that that's yeah. a really and sorry like Mark said uh, as soon as you get close and start looking at the details the theory that the two ships could be swapped easily it, it falls apart Right. The alterations made on Titanic's B deck area, where what had been an enclosed promenade on the Olympic was actually turned into more first class suites, that alteration took weeks in the shipyard for them to make. It was not a small change. It actually involved them changing out the outer shell plating and changing the configuration of the windows that Mark mentioned. These are not things that you could do overnight or over a weekend. Uh, this was very involved, very elaborate. And of course, for the crew, um, many of Titanic's crew had come over from Olympic. They'd been serving with her since the previous June, and they knew that ship very well. And when they came over to Titanic, uh, many of the survivors mentioned uh, the differences between the two ships uh, and how there had been improvements made uh, to Titanic, sometimes even based on their suggestions uh, on what they had found on Olympic the previous year. And so these individuals, they weren't just um, casually acquainted. Uh, they This was their home away from home for, for weeks and months at a time. And they would have been able to spot uh, any such switch very easily. Mm. Right. And I think that's a great point in the terms of that, you know, when we talk about the switch theory, I think people neglect to think about how many people would have to be involved in something like that and get on board like you mentioned the, the crew this isn't you know something that they're sneakily doing in the night and everyone on board is being has been hoodwinked more or less it's there's a lot of people that that need to be involved and i think that often happens in the in these theories you forget just how large they would have to be to actually be be pulled off mm -hmm. I, I think that's a, a really great point that yeah is often glossed over for obvious reasons because when you bring it up the it, it takes away a lot from the conspiracy yeah, I mean, do, do either of you know sort of how many staff and crew there would have been on board? Uh, there was over 800 crew members wow. on Titanic. Wow. What was the exact figure, Mark? Do you have that? Oh, um, I don't from memory, actually. I think it was, was it 892 or something? I think it was a, mm. it was closer to 900, I think. That does Very just, close. yeah, that uh, just yeah. gives an idea of the absolute enormity of, of the scale of the project we're talking about. And I think Mark used the word nonsense. Um, that was strong. Yeah. That was very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't really know, you know, th there's no other way to describe it, to be honest. And yeah. I, I suppose what we need to look at as well is Harland and Wolf. Right. Because um, when um, Olympic made her main voyage in 1911, um, that was in the June. Um, she returned to Hondewell Shipyard um, in September. Well, no, it was uh, October, sorry, 1911. And she was there into November for repairs. And then the ship, two ships were together again um, early in March 1912 when Olympic returned to have a, a propeller blade uh, re replaced because she'd uh, lost a propeller blade. Well, um, you know, the, this is the point where a switch would have had to happen according to the conspiracy theorists and Hond and Wolf had I believe the workforce had hit about 15,000 people oh, wow. 
1912. There are certainly news reports, you know, they're talking about record wage bills um, and, the, the, you know, the amount Holland and Wolf were spending paying the workforce um, was, was really quite extraordinary. Um, you know, simply docking uh, one of these ships in, in the huge dry dock in Belfast, which was the only one in the world that was large enough to accommodate either of these ships at the time, mm. um, was such a delicate operation. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just inconceivable to me that even if you say, oh, well, it would only have been a few hundred people, um, and I, I that's, think that's still a large, that's still a pretty large number. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you rely on them keeping quiet? I mean, what, what are they yeah. saying? Uh, are they all are they all being bribed? Well, that's going to be quite expensive if you have to keep paying them. Yeah. Um, you know, do they keep quiet when they realise, oh, the ship's not only sank but it's killed, you know, nearly fifteen hundred people, um, and you know, there are people. Um, you know, what about deathbed confessions? You might have expected. <laughs> yeah, so it would have, have come it. out. Yeah, someone, someone unburdening themselves. Mm. Um, you know, the the knowledge. Um, it just doesn't pass any kind of common sense. You know, test. It, it's just not as simple. You can't simply swap these ships over. Um, yeah, again, nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great word to to sum it up. And on the question, I think, you know, we're talking about how expensive the wages are. A lot of this theory seems to hinge on this, this idea of insurance and that they had um, lost a lot of money with, with the Olympic during, for the repairs and whatnot. And what do you make of that, this, this idea that it was all for insurance fraud? Well, maybe we should go into the backstory behind what had happened to Olympic first. Yeah, that would be wonderful, uh, actually. That'd be great. In September of 1911, uh, the Olympic was leaving Southampton and ran across uh, the path of an Admiralty cruiser, the HMS Hawk. And the two ships were steaming side by side and one thing led to another. And the Hawk actually veered or was sucked into the side of the Olympic. And it was actually designed uh, to sink ships by ramming them. It had a reinforced concrete bow and Ooh. Uh, when it veered into the side of the Olympic, it scythed a, a huge hole uh, both above and below the waterline of the Olympic. Actually, did quite a bit of uh, damage to the ship's machinery, uh, propellers, propeller shafts. Um, uh, did quite a bit of damage to the second class cabins. Fortunately, most of the passengers were all at lunch, so no one was injured. Hmm. And there was even some significant flooding in a couple of the watertight compartments. Oh, all right. Interesting. And so when that happened, uh, Olympic was immediately uh, out of commission until she could be repaired. And so for that, she had to go back to Belfast uh, for a complete inspection and, uh, and, and repairs. Of all of the ships to crash into, that really was an unlucky choice, wasn't it? Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, that sounds like when we were talking about that very briefly, briefly earlier in um, kind of the simplest ways possible, because I didn't realize that it was you know, so reinforced to, to take down ships these way, this way. And so why, from what I gathered, and this could be totally incorrect, that ultimately it was found that it was the Olympic at fault for this accident? Is, is that true? Uh, well, it's, it's complicated. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, it's quite. This was something that was hugely controversial in 1911, and when the the court verdict came out, there were reams of uh, letters to the Times and other papers from you know retired admirals and that sort of thing, saying how unjust the verdict was. Um, the yeah, the short version is that um, White Star and the Admiralty both uh, took each other to court because White Star thought the Admiralty were to blame. Admiralty mm. thought that uh, White Star and Olympic were to blame. Um, the court decided that blame for the collision lay with Olympic. Okay. Uh, but when the collision occurred, Olympic had not long left Southampton and she was in pilotage waters. Oh, now, what happened was that she was under the navigational command of a uh, compulsory harbour pilot um, from, from Trinity House. Um, and he was a man called uh, George Bowyer. And he was the guy giving all the orders in connection with Olympics navigation. He was the one giving the helm commands, commands to the engine. It was him that instructed that the ship's whistle be blown um, you know, to, to, to signal manoeuvring. Um, so, even though Olympic was held to blame for the collision, White Star were able to rely on a defence in UK law, which was called compulsory pilotage, which was basically um, the pilot. We used a licensed pilot. We used a compulsory pilot. Um, all of the orders the pilot gave were carried out correctly by the ship's crew, um, and therefore. Uh, they were able to say, yes, Olympic was at fault, but the owners are essentially cleared of blame because she was under the command of a pilot. And yeah, this just created a storm of controversy in 1911. And in fact, in 1913, the defense of compulsory pilotage in UK law was, uh, was actually revoked. Oh, wow. I, I'm not saying that that was solely um, due to um, the, the Hawke collision in 1911, um, but there have been discussions about yeah, changing. Yeah, it seemed like it was controversial. Yeah, I think it certainly contributed to it. So, although Olympic was held to blame uh, and White Star appealed several times, it eventually went to the House of Lords, which was then, you know, the the, the, the highest court in the in the UK. Um, they they were unsuccessful. Um, so from that perspective, Olympic was held to blame, but they were able to use the compulsory pilotage defence. So it's not this clear-cut idea that I think gets presented to us by the by the theory that you know it was this. Uh, it, no. So fi financially, who who paid for it then? Uh, well, uh, there's quite a. I, I guess in terms of finances, we probably need to discuss the, um, the, the, the broader context. Right, that'd be great. So, um, in, uh, in building Olympic, Titanic and um, her sister, Britannic, um, White Star ultimately invested more than £5 million, um, you know, which, which is a lot of money, mm -hmm. a lot of money there. Yeah. And um, bear in mind that the White Star Line had a fleet of 23 ships as of 1908, which was when they confirmed um, the, uh, the, the order to, to, to go ahead um, with construction. Um, the capital they invested in the three Olympic class ships was more 
than their entire existing fleet of 23 ships was valued at as of 1908. So that illustrates the scale of the project and um, part of the way they financed it was by borrowing money okay. from, uh, they, they issued bonds to investors who were largely based in the UK. And uh, of course, you know, as usual, they, the investors got interest and so on. Um, so Olympic herself cost just roughly a little over one and a half million pounds and um, White Star in 1911 actually reported their highest profit to date. And that is despite all of the costs of the Hawke collision. So um, Olympic missed three voyages where, you know, it was actually the height of the season um, where they had to cancel a voyage. Um, I don't think we actually have a primary source which gives a full breakdown of all the individual costs. There were certainly estimates that appeared in the press running into hundreds of thousands of pounds. My goodness. Um, but to put that in context, White Star made a profit of nearly 1.1 million oh, wow. in 1911. So a few hundred thousand pounds, it's certainly a cost, it's certainly significant, but in no way is it financially fatal to, to, to the company at all. Um, White Star was a strong company. Um, they were making lots of profit. They were more profitable than their rival, Cunard. Um, they were still able to pay dividends to their investors. So, you know, the, the, the idea that this was an enormous financial hit, you know, and some people say, oh, well, it, it could have bankrupted the company. Well, again, that's, that's simply not true. Yes, there was a cost but by no means was it something that, that would have called the company's existence into jeopardy. Um, you know, that's, that's just not the case. Right. So, and I, yeah. And I think now is a good time also to point out something that um, Mark and myself and some of the other historians that we work with have been trying to clear up. For many years, if you read books about Olympic and Titanic, you would read a sentence and it was, almost this boilerplate sentence that said that uh, J.P. Morgan, who owned the uh, White Star Line through its uh, parent company, Oceanic Steam Navigation Company, and through its parent company, International Mercantile Marine, had basically bankrolled the construction of Olympic and Titanic, and that he was the one who had the purse strings and made all the decisions on on uh, the running of the companies, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Oh, all right. Um, in, I, I, in reality, thought, I thought that was the truth, to be honest with you, from, from the research I'd done, so I'm, yeah, I'm curious to know why it's not. Yeah. Maybe Mark could fill us in a little bit more on how, uh, the, what he was talking about was how uh, White Star had gone into debt. It had financed this by issuing bonds and the public had bought the bonds and they had thus raised the capital to build right. the ships. So they were able to completely finance construction of Olympic and Titanic themselves without ever having to draw on the purse strings of JP Morgan. And that's one of the things that I think these conspiracy theorists tend to get into is they, they see in these uh, multimillionaire, uh, multi-billionaire moguls of that era. They think of them as these evil capitalists yeah. and that they must have been up to no good. 
And I think uh, just knowing how those ships were financed uh, and, and that it was not what is commonly supposed, it goes a long way toward undermining the very premises of the theory itself. Yeah, we talked about briefly just how sinister these people would have to be to kind of pull off an operation, you know, like this, the absolute carelessness at which they thought of, you know, human life mm-hmm. if they were if they were to do something like this. It, yeah. You know, it's quite a jump, really, to, to, to claim that about these individuals. So we, we were talking about that, just how that, you know, a lot of theories do kind of ignore the fact that this is a very, you know, serious claim to make about someone, that they'd be willing to go to these lengths to do something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. beyond shipyard personnel, as Mark was pointing out, you have up to 15,000 workers in the shipyard, and so many of them would have had to have been involved, and yet you never heard about, um, you never heard these deathbed confessions from dozens of them or, or hundreds of them saying, yes, I was involved in that. But if you ever go to Belfast itself uh, and you look at just the, the terrain around the city, um, there are hills uh, and, and, and mountains and countryside and those ships are very much on display when they're in the shipyard. And right. the public all had access. They could all see what was going on. If they wanted to walk up to, up up the hill and see the ships down below, they could see everything that was going on. So you, beyond the shipyard and its employees, you have all these members of the public who for years had been following the construction of the ships. They were very curious about them. And any one of them could have seen what was being done and and blown the lid off the whole thing if they felt so inclined. Yeah, that is that is so true. And, um, you know, when uh, either Olympic or Titanic was coming into Belfast or um, simply when they were being um, manoeuvred in the shipyard, um, you know, these were, um, these were subject to detailed newspaper reports. You know, there would be a reporter on hand, um, you know, describing uh, you know, who's superintending the operation, um, describing in great detail the preparations to, you know, to, to open up the, the huge graving dock to, to get Olympic or to get Titanic in. Um, you know, there were fewer um, chances to actually be in the shipyard and, and see it closer. But yeah, as Ken said, um, you know, the, again, the idea that people just wouldn't notice what was going on. Um, it's 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 just completely nuts and you know this this comes back to the whole thing about insurance um you know insurance companies i I think they get pretty wise to bogus claims um you know it's 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 the warehouse that burns down and it turns out the company was close to being bankrupt and they think oh you know they're claiming they had all this valuable stock in the warehouse but you know we can't find any trace of it or whatever it might be um, and in terms of the insurance, um, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying about JP Morgan, um, uh, Morgan's interest in White Star was actually taking money out, not putting money in. Um, if we go back to the formation of Iron Man, um, going back to 1902, um, Morgan's, uh, uh, company, Iron Man, basically overpaid for control of White Star and all the other shipping lines. Um, 
and that was a problem because they themselves had raised debt in order to acquire the, the, the controlling shareholding in White Star and other companies. So because they'd overpaid, they needed to um, you know, pay their investors, pay the people they owed money to. So what, the, what Morgan's interest was, was in getting money out of White Star, and that was a, a, a key part of why White Star had to borrow the money, because their profits were being paid out in dividends um, you know, to, to the combine, to the controlling company. But as far as the insurance goes, um, and I think this was something uh, Philip Franklin, who was vice president of IMM, commented in 1912, I think at the um, Senate inquiry, um, he said that he thought there were no other shipping lines, um, I hope I got this quote right, um, that carried as much of their own risk as IMM. So if we take um, Olympic and Titanic as an example, round numbers, they cost a little over £1.5 million, but a third of that was actually self-insured. So mm. it came under um, an insurance fund that all the all the all the shipping lines in this combine paid into, um, and um, you know the the remaining million was um, spread over a syndicate of various insurance companies. And when Titanic sank, yes, they uh, they all paid out, but that remaining third you know it was a hit that the company took so from a financial perspective you know even even the notion that you know you could make a successful insurance claim um because in, let, let's not forget if these ships have been swapped um you know one of them has to sail as the other for the best right. part of 23 years and you would think at some point some, some, someone might clue into that yeah someone might notice and uh, you know i'm sure if it came to light that that was the other ship, um, you know, you might be revisiting, I would think, any any insurance monies that were paid out. Um, you know, so again, just another another example of just why it's just nonsensical. Yeah. And on top of that, when you think about it, the the Olympic was so badly damaged in in the Hawk collision that she had to really limp back to Belfast at reduced speed and in order for her to pass as the new Titanic if this switch conspiracy were true they would have had to have done a lot of repairs to Olympic to get it to perform as well as Titanic was on the maiden voyage let's not forget that Titanic was doing something like 22 knots uh, the night that she struck the iceberg and Olympic had never uh, hit 22 knots on that trip back to Belfast. Um, so there would have had to have been a, a protracted and very expensive repairs done to Olympic just to get her in good enough shape to pass off as the newer ship. And that's something that the theory is really predicated on is that uh, Olympic was so badly damaged that she was a financial write-off and really couldn't be repaired. And it, it so they had to, to do something to recoup the financial loss. And yet, just getting her to that spot where Titanic sank would have would have involved a great deal. And let's not forget the months uh, that she was in service from when those repairs were completed in Belfast in late 1911 
to a Titanic's maiden voyage in early 1912. And uh, it, it just, as Mark said, it doesn't make sense. Uh, there, the, the links in the chain do not fit together uh, by any sensical uh, uh, reasoning standard. Right. Yeah. And, and, oh, sorry, Quincy. I, I guess just adding something very briefly as well, there's this whole point of a conspiracy theory in terms of, well, why swap the ships? Well, if there is an insurance fraud and the ship's being deliberately sunk, why not sink the Olympic? Yeah, no, that's a no, fantastic point as well. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would they have to switch them? Yeah, yeah that's, I, I, that's um, something that, that's, that I've never thought about, but that's a very yeah. good point. And I think that, you know, what we were just discussing is a really great segue into the next theory in terms of how fast the Titanic was going, the, the coal fire theory. When Claire and I were talking about it, there seems to be this impression that the reason the Titanic might have been going so fast is that there was this active, this active fire going on. So, you know, I, I yeah, to start, like, what it would a coal fire on one of these ships look like? Like, I, I think I, I certainly struggle to imagine what that situation would even be like. Yeah. So first of all, this theory really gained a lot of traction uh, about four or five years ago. It became very, very popular. Uh, there were a lot of very splashy headlines. Uh, and if you were only casually interested in the Titanic, maybe you'd heard about it, watched a movie or two, seen a, a documentary or program on television, uh, you could be forgiven for coming under the impression that this was a new bombshell, that Titanic had a, a coal bunker fire. And in reality, uh, everyone had really known about the coal bunker fire on Titanic since 1912. It had been discussed in the inquiries. It was an established part of the historical record. It was in many books on the subject. Uh, there is no question that there was a coal bunker fire on Titanic. Wow. Uh, the real question is what kind of an effect did it really have on the overall maiden voyage and the ensuing disaster? And that unfortunately is the part that's been blown way out of proportion. Uh, for starters, Coal bunker fires, uh, you, you think about the way these ships were built and powered, and it wasn't just Olympic and Titanic. Uh, they had hundreds of ships that were powered by coal in that period, run by numerous different companies. Um, and coal is a combustible substance, and although it wasn't certainly happening on every ship on every voyage, uh, particularly when you loaded coal into the bunkers, uh, there could be uh, friction, there could be sparks from the, the, the pieces of coal bumping into each other, and uh, you could have a, a combustion, and it would be uh, less of an open flame type thing than many people imagine. They think of a, a fire as... Yeah, it's, it's kind know. of raging, and yeah, this, this, this destructive force. That's how I certainly yeah. would think about it. Yeah, but really what it was is more like uh, burning embers. Uh, okay. If you if you've ever had a fire pit with charcoal bricks and you, you see the the actual embers are are cooking, they're still hot, but you don't necessarily have open flames. It, it was more along those lines than uh, this giant conflagration with flames pouring out of your coal bunkers and, and things like that. Uh, certainly, there would have been some level of smoke depending on the severity of of the fire, um, but. You know, it, overall, these were not unheard of events, and uh, crews on ships uh, were were trained in how to to deal with such matters as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's 
I think that's a key. It's in terms of, you know, coal fires were not uncommon. Um, it is quite hard to get data to, to, to quantify and say, well, actually, how common were they? Um, and I think that's partly because, you know, there wasn't necessarily a particular concern. Um, I mean, if I can just give a, a random example. So going back quite a few decades to the early years of White Star, they had a ship called Atlantic, which actually made, met a, a pretty sad end as Titanic did. Um, but we, we have data on one of her voyages and her chief engineer reported three separate coal bunker fires oh, wow. on one ship on one voyage. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not saying that was common by any means, but um, I, I just throw that in there as, you know, perhaps just something to think over and maybe put it into perspective. Right. Um, and again, a lot of the claims being made to do with the coal fire don't really make sense. I mean, part of the argument, yeah, you, you hear different things. I mean, one of the arguments was um, there was a coal fire the ship was also short of coal and that's why they were speeding to New York. And you think, well, actually, um, that doesn't make sense. It's like the guy that gets pulled over for speeding and he says to the policeman, I'm sorry, I'm, I was going so fast, I've got to get to the petrol station. You know, it just overlooks, well, actually, you go faster, you use more petrol. Yeah. Um, you know, if, <laughs> if uh, they, they go faster, they, they burn more, more coal. Um, and you know as an example of that these ships if they're doing about 23 knots the increase in coal consumption is it's not quite a third but it's close yeah significant um, so the the coal consumption goes up far beyond the proportional increase in speed because those extra few knots you need so much extra energy and that's partly why white star focused on um comfort and luxury um you know because the ruinous economic cost of uh, of high speed um so the idea that they were speeding because there was a coal shortage doesn't make any sense um and then you hear people saying oh the coal was on fire so they're having to get rid of it and shovel it into the boilers um well we have testimony from uh frederick barrett um who um testified that the final i think it was the final three of the 24 double-ended boilers um, were lit. I think it was that Sunday, if I remember rightly. Maybe Kent will correct me. But he said that's absolutely correct. Yep. Yeah, and he said they were, but they, they were lit, but they weren't. They weren't immediately connected to the engines, so they weren't contributing to the ship's speed. So I think, well, okay. So presumably, then you could light a boiler, put coal into it, if if that was the issue. Um, you don't have to collect connect them up so um a, a lot of it just doesn't seem to fit with you know the testimony of, uh, of people that were there um titanic's coal supply is very well documented um even on the most conservative estimate she'd have had spare coal for about two days worth yeah at uh, and that's at normal speed i mean if you slowed her down she could have had enough coal for a couple of days um, you know, and the, the transatlantic leg of the voyage is only five and a half days. So there was certainly no um, coal shortage at all. Um, and I guess really the whole question of speeding, a lot of it comes from 
hindsight bias you know it's this idea it's easier to be wise after the fact yeah hindsight's 2020 yeah absolutely um because today if you think the idea you've got the largest liner in the world on a maiden voyage and she's just accelerating throughout the voyage um and accelerating into an area where they knew there was ice and it, it, it just seems completely nonsensical um you know reckless even um but in the context of the time uh, you know there are a number of captains who testified after the disaster and these were captains not just from white star but from kunar from other lines uh, you know commanders that had decades of experience um saying that they would have done what captain smith did oh interesting uh, you know the so it was essentially a case of what was common practice in 1912 um you know you, you learn from dead men's mistakes mm. and um if you look at the british um the the, the recognitions court the inquiry into the disaster that was held in the uk um it, it was essentially to the effect that um in future if a commander you know followed that practice then uh, i i think I think it would be a case of negligence i think that was the terminology so it was basically a case of um following the standard of the time right and, and really quickly so. bringing it back to the the actual you know coal fire how damaging would, would that damage the ship at all or was it really just kind of so that's a really that's a really good question um we know for example that the coal fire was extinguished on saturday Okay. A day before the collision. And we know that uh, ever since the ship had left Southampton, uh, there had been uh, a detail of men who had been assigned with the task of clearing that bunker out because the, the fire was at the bottom of the bunker. And so they wanted to get the all of the coal out of that bunker, draw that down, and get to the bottom of things, and that in that way they could extinguish the fire. And we know they were able to accomplish that task on Saturday, the day before the collision, uh, we have testimony from some of the surviving lead firemen like Barrett, which uh, Mark alluded to before. Uh, and they said that they were actually able to get into the bunker. Okay, so the steel plates were not white hot at the time of the collision. Uh, it was fit for human habitation. You could go in there. Um, another interesting detail is, I think it was Barrett, uh, uh, Mark will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he testified that he was actually tasked uh, with rubbing oil over the steel plate, um, which makes sense because one of the things that you're constantly working against on a steel ship is um, corrosion. So if you've got bare metal, uh, if it was painted and then uh, because of the fire and the heat from the fire, the uh, metal was now exposed, you wanted to make sure you, you stopped that corrosion in its tracks. Uh, so he was tasked with applying oil uh, to the to the damaged section of the bunker, and he did say he used the word "dinged" when he referred to uh, the actual watertight bulkhead that's uh, that went through the middle of that bunker. He said that the bulkhead was dinged a bit, um, but what exactly he meant by that? Uh, how big of a ding did he mean? Like a little dent? Did he you know what did he mean? Uh, that's very open to interpretation, and we really don't have 
uh, much else in the way of documented evidence on what he was really describing uh, when he when he referred to that. But we do know that at the time of the collision, the bunker was cold, it was empty, and uh, this is actually an, an area where when the ship collided with the iceberg, uh, Barrett was actually on duty in boiler room six, which is the forwardmost boiler room. He saw the collision, he saw uh, basically the, uh, the opening on the starboard side of the ship, just above wow. the four plates in his bunker, and he was able to track that that same collision damage went into that bunker where the fire had been. It crossed the watertight bulkhead that went through the bunker and it stopped just inside of the bunker on the other side of the bulkhead. So that the next boiler room aft, number five, had no water on the floor plates and there was no obvious damage inside that boiler room itself for, for quite some time after the collision. Oh, interesting. That's, you know, coming to this theory, this was definitely one where yeah, like you mentioned, there seemed to be these big headlines, but then actually reading into it, they, they didn't really give that much information as to what the actual ramifications of something like this would be like. What was this, you know, uh, big anomaly, as we were talking about, or was it something that was, that was somewhat expected? And I, I think that brings us to a question that Claire and I were discussing earlier in terms of, you know, in your opinions why would you know why do these theories exist why do people not want to trust um kind mm. of what happened is it do you think it has to do with you know potentially fame and fortune or is it people just like people are drawn to <laughs> people like a good story yeah people like yeah, yeah it, it's already a pretty in, amazing i mean and tragic story without any without any conspiracy going on which is yeah yeah it is it is art um and you know we need to recognize it's not something specific to titanic yeah for sure we've got people that think that you know the earth is flat yeah. <laughs> um, and you know the, the the flat earth society has got members all over the globe um <laughs> apparently um but you know 9 11 um the the moon landings uh, the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. Um, conspiracy theories seem to thrive in the wake of high-profile disasters, and I, I guess there's something in the human condition where, yeah, it, it, they. It, it's almost it's almost like, you know, it, it can't be that simple. Yes. You know, it can't be something as simple as someone decides to shoot the president. Or random, um, maybe. I, I've always, it struck me that, you know, yeah. this is this is a, a tragedy and maybe people don't want to imagine like that, you know, something like this could just be an accident and potentially could, you know, happen to them in one sense or another. It has to be some sort of conspiracy that, that kind of helps you sleep better at night, potentially. Yeah, it's maybe more comforting to think that actually there's a, there's a sinister conspiracy behind it. Um, you know, because the odds of Titanic not getting to New York were, uh, you know, I, I, it j just would have been inconceivable for anyone to think that when when she left, when she left the UK, um, that she would not reach America. Um, 
and you know you you can look at the statistics of um, you know ships that collided with ice. Um, you know some were lost, um, but looking at UK ships in particular, um, and you know going back twenty years before the disaster, you look at the number of passengers that were carried on that route, and you look at the shipping casualties and the actual loss of life. It was such a statistically such a safe mode of transport and um, you, you've just got that element that's the largest ship in the world you know she's believed to be safe believed to be unsinkable although as Kent said that was something that, that, that grew um, or, or certainly was exaggerated after the disaster I think um, and yeah there's just an element of oh it can't have been as simple as they just hit an iceberg and you know they just misjudged what speed was safe and misjudged their ability to see a hazard in in time to avoid it and um you know we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the officer on the bridge first officer murdoch um he's got a pretty bad press yeah i actually think he nearly pulled off a miracle i think he came very close to avoiding the iceberg entirely ironically i think he was a a sailor of the highest skill um and he's got a, he's got a very raw deal in, in history uh, and people that have you know had the comfort of years to think about it of oh he should have done this he should have done that um yeah. you know there has to be some explanation oh it must have been mm-hmm. deliberate I, Interestingly, yeah. one of my good friends here is her last name's Murdoch, and she is one of his descendants. And her family still doesn't like no to talk way. about it. Yeah, oh. we were joking that she wouldn't be led into the Titanic exhibition that's going on in London right now. Yeah. Like her family, they they don't like to talk about it because understandable. They, yeah, they yeah. really are like yeah the Murdochs, which is kind of which is kind of interesting that uh, you know this reputation. They still her family still thinks about it, which is yeah, yeah it's a. Uh, I don't think so seriously anymore, but she's, she's said that her, like her grandma and stuff didn't, they didn't want to tell people that they were related, um, stuff like that. It, it was kind of a, there was a stigma around the name. Yeah, there certainly was. And certainly it wasn't because of anything that he did wrong on that night. Uh, as Mark said, people have had a lot of time to think about those uh, 30 seconds to a minute uh, when the evac, uh, evasive action needed to be taken. And uh, as Mark said, it, it really does seem that he he almost almost pulled it off. Uh, he he did the best with the circumstances he was presented with, and he very nearly saved the ship. Um, but getting back to this question about why these conspiracy theories are so appealing, I agree with everything that Mark said. Um, you know, it just appeals that there had to be some nefarious. Uh, mentality behind it all there had to be something going on that 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 created it but one of the things that we discussed in in our time with you today is that many ships many captains were playing russian roulette out there in the north atlantic Um, icebergs were not unheard of Uh, ships did tangle with them from time to time certainly there were warnings of ice uh, on other voyages other months other years and the the prevailing practice of the time was you just go full speed ahead and you keep to your route and to your schedule and if you 
see danger, you slow down or you avoid it. And this was something that was done uh, for many, many years and you didn't have ships, um, you know, hitting icebergs right and left and hundreds of people dying because of it. Um, and even afterwards, I was astounded when I looked at uh, reports in the weeks and months after the Titanic disaster to find other ships were still doing it. And oh, we're wow. saying even the same ice field the Titanic had steamed through, other ships were coming in and they were saying, oh, we, you know, we were going full speed through the same and we just narrowly avoided uh, the same icebergs. Um, and it, it just goes to show that um, people tend to run risks and then they, they get caught up short when a disaster happens and uh, laws are written in, in blood very frequently and uh, then there can be a complacency that sets back in after a number of years because the human memory tends to be rather short. And why are, why are we suffering this inconvenience? Well, why don't we just go back out and do it the same way again? Um, but it, it very, it's very clear that with Titanic, it really was a game of Russian roulette and the numbers just came up. It was Titanic was in the wrong place at the wrong time and everything just kind of fell into place the way it needed to fall into place to have this uh, horrible event uh, take place. And unfortunately, you know, the conspiracy theories appeal to people. The basic story of Titanic has been known for 110 years now. The basic facts have never changed. Um, the ship was speeding through an ice zone, hit the iceberg, and nearly 1,500 people died as a result. And I think there tends to be in a very crowded community where a lot of people are trying to make a name for themselves and get remembered and get attention and get headlines and write books and sell these books and, and be featured in uh, programs on television. It tends to be, uh, you, you notice that the splashier the claim, the more attention they get. And right. This is certainly a very splashy claim. And if it had been true, if it had been provable, it would have been a, a um, you know, a, a horrendous conspiracy or negligence. Uh, but really when you look at the facts, when you look at the, the details of it, even some of the claims that have been made go against the, the overall theory, uh, like being short on coal, but we have to speed up to, to right. burn the coal off. And yet, <laughs> The five auxiliary boilers uh, were not even lit when the ship hit the iceberg. We, we know that because one of the people who would have been working those five boilers said he was uh, on duty, but he was doing something else. So uh, you didn't even have all 29 furnaces going uh, at the uh, 29 boilers going at the same time. So the, the, the claims are, as Mark said, they look good to, to, to just a, a quick inspection. But as soon as you dig, it, it really becomes a tangled web of nonsense. I, I think that's, you know, just a great way to, you know, close off this discussion and just the terms, uh, just talking about how, you know, from afar almost, if I can, you know, be a little cheesy and say from afar, the Titanic and Olympic looked similar. But, you know, as, as you get closer, they, they don't. And it seems to be the case with these conspiracies as well, that under close inspection, they really they really do come apart. So... Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been a great conversation. I know that Claire and I are, um, we're both amateurs in, in, in this particular area. So it's, it's been great to get your um, expertise on it. And, and thank you again for joining us. 
Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we had the pleasure of conducting it. It was it was just great. As you could hear, they're so passionate about the subject matter. They're so knowledgeable about mm, it. So knowledgeable. So knowledgeable. Just, you know, and hopefully in the future we're able to welcome them back on when we look at some some other maritime conspiracies because there's, there's quite a few. Uh, but on that note, we thought we'd let you all know what the topic of the next podcast is going to be it's it's one that is very exciting it's the authorship question of shakespeare shakespeare's plays mm. was shakespeare first of all was he real was he just a cover for other authors that is what we're going to be delving into next week hopefully mm. with another interview uh, with some experts that's uh something that we hope to continue to do yeah i'm very much looking forward to it and um can't wait for you guys to all tune in and and let us know what you thought